These may be challenging times, but have hope and listen to the untold health stories about incredible people who have committed their lives to better their communities. Diverse health activists, direct medical providers, community organizers that are helping our communities to get healthier and stronger. Stories of local heroes during the pandemic and even before that proves over and over again that people can come together during times of need and make the world a better place. Stories you would never hear of, except at Healthcare Untold, hosted by Barbara Ann Garcia. Uh, welcome, JD, to Healthcare Untold. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, we're so interested in hearing your story, J.D., and uh, the work that you're doing for Wings of Life International uh, in New Mexico. So why don't we just start, J.D.? Tell us about yourself. Okay. Well, my name is uh, J.D. Medina. I was born uh, in New Mexico in Santa Fe, and I am actually um, from a mixed culture. So uh, mestizo, if you're familiar with that term, it's a mix of Spanish and indigenous in my case, the indigenous uh, half is a quarter Diné, which is Navajo, and a quarter Pueblo from Zio Pueblo. And then my mom's side of the family is Spanish. Um, and so both sides of my family have been in New Mexico for many, many, many generations. And, and um, it's a really beautiful thing. But also for me growing up, it was, uh, it was, it was very hard. And I think, uh, I kind of struggled with it a little bit because it was really hard for me to find my identity. So growing up, um, you know, it was, um, I just never really felt like I fit in. So I would be with my mom's family and, you know, they would sort of tease me and, and tell me in a very loving way, but I was just very young and I didn't understand where they were coming from. And they would tell me, you know, like, you're not Spanish, you're native, go back to the res and, you know, my uncles and stuff. And it was just very like, uh, for me, I just didn't understand it. For them, they were just joking in good hearted way. And, um, and then it was also the same on my dad's side of the family. Um, you know, they would always tell me, you're not Indian, you're, you're Mexican, go back to Mexico. Of course, I'm not even, you know, it was Spanish, not Mexican, but they were just teasing me in, in, in a very loving way. Um, but at the same time, it really stuck with me because it was, I just didn't ever really feel like I fit in anywhere. Um, and then my mom and my father got divorced when I was very young. So um, it was always a lot of back and forth. And then also my mom um, at the time was a single mother who, uh, you know, she, we were, we weren't, um, we weren't well to do, I should say. And she was constantly changing jobs and things like that when I was very young. So we was we were always moving back and forth from like from Powake, which is a small town north of Santa Fe, to Santa Fe, back to Powake. So coming up and going to school, I would start a school and I would stay there for maybe a year or a year and a half, and then I'd move. Then I'd go back to a different school, stay there for a little bit, then move again, move again, move again. So every time I felt like I was finally starting to get my footing in a place we would move and switch and I'd have to start over. And so it was just very hard for me coming up. Like, like I said, um, with all that, I just, it was hard for me to find an identity for myself. So when we, um, when my mother got remarried, I was about 10 and we moved to California 
which really talk about a fish out of water. It was just kind of like, you know, for me struggling already to find my identity and then to pick me up from what I what I know and put me in a totally different place. It was just, it was hard. And so when I got introduced to drugs and alcohol, it kind of, um, it was like I found an identity. It was like, you know, it, the alcohol gave me confidence. It made me feel like um, I could sort of escape because when I would drink, it wasn't me. It was like, you know, uh, it was like I was putting on a costume and a mask and I could just be someone else. And I really, really liked that um, when I first started drinking um, because it was, you know, I could just mask all the confusion, all the the uh, hurt, everything that I was feeling. It just wasn't there anymore. And, and so, you know, I, I started drinking very young and I started drinking a lot and very heavily. And then it progressed into some drug use and... Um, for me, like I said, it was, it was like my identity. I finally felt like this is, this is something to help me. This helps me fit in. Right. And, um, so it was, you know, it was fun and, and stuff at first. So then of course that led to me getting into a lot of trouble, me, you know, um, getting into trouble with the law, getting in trouble with my family, things like that. So, um, what I did was I ended up, I graduated from high school, which was a miracle, but I did. And shortly after that, uh, I got uh, kicked out of my house, my stepfather, which him and I never really got along either. But um, he basically told me, like, you know, I don't appreciate the life you're living and you're no longer welcome in our home. And there was a lot of stuff that led up to that. It was all my doing, obviously. I mean. You know, I take full responsibility for, for everything that happened, but um, he basically told me that, you know, I needed to figure something out. And me being uh, an alcoholic and, you know, immature and things like that, well, I wasn't ready to go out and get a, a place of my own. So I figured, well, hey, let me let me call my dad. And by this time, my dad was already being married. He was living in Santa Fe. I picked up the phone. I called him. And I asked him, you know, do you think I could come live with you? And no questions asked. He didn't even talk to his wife, anything like that. He said, when can you be here? So I can be there tomorrow. So I packed up all my stuff, drove from California to Santa Fe, and I started living with my dad. And that was really, uh, it was actually a really cool time because me and my dad, like I would see him every now and then on weekends. Um, he was, he's also a very bad alcoholic. Um, so he was just never really a stable father figure in my life. There was a lot of, a lot of really bad stories that I remember about him. Um, you know, I don't really like to, to tell those stories though, because I just like to remember the good in him because he was a very, very, very loving man. And, um, you know, he just, he had some, some demons and some issues and he was an alcoholic and and I always like to say it's funny because on my mom's side of the family the Spanish um they have a uh, land in Puaque and there's like this little um plot of land that they own and through the generations it's been handed down and sort of broken up and separated out so that now 
my grandmother lives there and my mom has five brothers and sisters and out of the six kids my mom and one other aunt are the only two that don't live still right there and so they're all very very close and um you know but there's alcoholism on my mom's side of the family as well but it's more like you know they're still very functional and they're still very loving and everybody's very close and it's not like driving people apart whereas on my dad's side of the family on the native american side the alcoholism was very destructive and it was you know there was a lot of anger and a lot of hurt and i think a lot of that comes from um you know the historical trauma and the generational trauma that comes with that and i heard a very interesting take on it um recently where an older native gentleman said that uh, obviously a lot of it comes with the you know relatively recent history of alcohol being introduced into the culture but also he said you know one of the one of his um, one of his ideas was that the early native that was dealing with the um, genocide and the cultural basically um, stealing them of their culture and forcing them to appropriate to a different culture while well, the early native basically had the feeling of you're telling me I can't be who I want to be but I'm not going to be who you want me to be so I'm just going to drink and forget about it all and just be this entirely different you know person and that's kind of like uh it kind of hit me because it I kind of related it to myself and it was like you know like I said I never really felt comfortable on my own skin and I didn't really want to really conform to what anybody else was telling me how to do so I kind of just got lost in this abyss of alcoholism and drugs and and so that kind of hit me funny but um but back to my father so um it was actually a really good time um because at that time it was like I got to know him again so I was a little bit older he was a little bit older so he wasn't as wild as crazy as he was in his younger days but he was still an alcoholic and uh you know we we would uh drink together and things like that and it was it was hard seeing my dad drunk because it would just bring out all these past traumas and these hurts and these um these demons that he dealt with and a lot of times he would just break down and start crying telling stories and things like that and so it was bittersweet because I did get to know him but at the same time I just hated seeing my dad like that and um you know and so with my my dad's side of the family all the males um you know they really uh struggled with the alcoholism and so they started basically dying before their time just one by one so my grandfather um put himself in a situation where he got shot and killed my uncle um died in a drunk driving car accident um and you know he he had a lot of hurt on that a lot of loss and so i lived with him for about two well i lived with him for about a year then i did move out i got my own place and um him and his wife ended up separating and he was staying with a friend of his and he just started drinking really really heavily and um you know by this point it was kind of like he was he was one of my best friends as opposed to being a father um and i but i really loved him like you know i really really loved him and so i would go check on him at his friend's house and one day i got i got off work and i went to his house and i was banging on the door and i could see him through the window and he was passed out on the couch with a empty fifth bottle next to him 
And I just kept banging, dad, dad, dad. And he, you know, he didn't get up. And so I said, okay, well, at least I know he's, you know, at least I know he's safe on the couch. Like, I don't think he's going to. So I left. Uh, the next day after work, I came and he was drunk again, but this time he was up. And, um, and I just, he came out to the driveway and I just was telling him, you know, asking him if he's okay. And he was saying he was, and he was talking to me. And I don't know if you've ever talked to, uh, someone that's really, really intoxicated, but it's like, they're, it's like, they're looking at you, but they're not looking at you. They're just looking like right through you that, you know, their, their gaze is not on you. It's like through you. And, and I just remember that look in his eyes and I just gave him a big hug and I told him, dad, you know, don't do anything. Don't do anything stupid. Cause I need you. Grandma needs you. The girls need you talking about his mom, my grandma and the girls are, um, my cousins and nieces that, like I said, the majority of the males at this point had already all died because uh, either directly or indirectly because of alcohol. And they really looked to my dad and myself as like the males of the family. And these are like, you know, four or five different families I'm talking about. Um, but we were kind of the only two left at that point. And I just gave him a big hug and told him, you know, don't do anything stupid. And in my mind, I thought I should bring him with me. But my girlfriend at the time didn't really like my dad at all because she didn't. She saw what his uh, his pain and his struggles and the things that he was doing, how it affected me. And she just didn't really like to see me like that. So she didn't like my dad to be around. So I said, you know, and I remember thinking that I should bring him with me. And then I thought, nah, I'm gonna, you know, I don't want to, I don't want her to get mad. So, um, you know, I just gave him a big hug and I left. And then uh, that night, we had a really good night. And then, um, you know, with my girlfriend and her brother and his girlfriend, we had a barbecue and stuff like that. And I just, it was, it was a happy night. Next morning, I got up, got ready for work, and I had my cell phone in my truck. I mean, these were when cell phones were first, you know, coming out. And it's not like people now they have them with them 24 hours a day. You know, I sat it on my truck. It wasn't any big deal. But I got I got in my truck and I looked at my phone, and it had I had like 50 missed calls, and I was like, oh man! And I looked, and they were from my dad's wife. And right away, my first thought was, oh, my dad's in jail. Like, oh man! Like, and I got mad. I was like, oh man! Like, you know, I was mad at him. I was like, man, can't believe he ended up in jail. You know, like, but at the same time, it was nothing new. Um, and so I called her. She was like, oh JD, I've been trying to call you. She's like, are you sitting down? And then right then I knew, and I was like, oh, my God. I said, what happened? She goes, your dad got shot last night. He's he's dead. And I was like, oh, my God. And that, that did a lot of things. Um, number one, it really made me question uh, God because I just didn't understand why I would be put in a situation to um, where me and my dad were put back in each other's lives and we just really had a really close bond and we we're really building on that and developing that. Um, and yeah, there was hard times and there was the drinking and all that. But at the same time, like I said, we got really, really close during this time. And so it made me really like, why would you put my dad back in my life? Allow us to build this bond just to take him away from me like that. Mm -hmm. And it really, really, really made me question that. And then also, 
it just sent me off the deep end as far as um, as far as my alcohol and drug use. And um, I'm sure you you're familiar with Santa Fe. It's a it's a small smaller community. Mm-hmm. So you know, everywhere I went, people were asking me about it. And you know, I would on my way to work, I would have to drive by where he was working at, and I would look over and see his empty parking space for a while until someone else took it. But you know, I'd see his work, and it just it was it was hard. And I thought, man, I need to I need to uh, you know. I need to get out of here. So I went back to California for a while. I actually ended up getting my graduate gemologist degree, which is the study of diamonds and gemstones. Right on, right on. Um, and, but at the same time, so I've always, I guess what you would call a functional alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I've always been able to, um, you know, maintain, like I said, I graduated high school. I, I've always had jobs where I was able to progress into like leadership and management roles. Um, I've always done well in, you know, in school. Um, but I just, at the same time, I was really, really, you know, heavily drinking. Um, by this point, it was probably about a, a fifth to two fifths a day. And I had developed a pretty strong cocaine habit. I was uh, smoking marijuana every day and really basically using anything that would get me high. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, I definitely had my drugs of choice, but really, if it was some, if somebody came along that had something that would get me high, I would, I would try it. Um, so I ended up getting into trouble, trouble in California, um, you know, legally, just in every way you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up coming back to New Mexico, um, and at this time I was just really drinking a lot, um, you know, using drugs a lot. I started basically doing all the things that kind of that entails um, as far as like, you know, stealing, um, drug dealing, um, all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Um, So basically it took me down the road. I remember one of my employees told me, like my employers told me at one time, you know, if you don't, and this was right before they fired me and they told me, if you don't stop what you're doing, you're going to do yourself up in prison. You know, my mind was, they're crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. So anyways, this lifestyle took me down a path that eventually did land me up in, in federal prison. And I spent um, six and a half years in federal prison. While I was in prison, my grandmother or my grandfather passed away. And I wasn't able to go to his funeral. And that this was my um, mother's father. That hit me really hard um, because... I wasn't able to go to the funeral. I wasn't able to just participate and be there. Um, then while I was in prison, my grandmother, which is my father's mother, passed away. And that was, that really, really, really impacted me because um, as I had said previously, there really was no male figures for anyone to really rely on or look up to. I was kind of the guy. And then when I went to prison, I left a huge gap. And then when my grandmother passed away, it was just, it was like chaos, you know? No one knew what to do. Everyone was was hurting. Everyone um, was just lost. And I know that had I not been in prison, I would have been there. I, I could have been there for everybody. I could have been the support. I could have been the rock. 
And that's when it finally clicked in my head, like, like what am I doing? Like, mm-hmm. you know, what what is really important to me? And um, and also one of the main things is that, um, you know, I wanted to be there for my daughter. And so in 2010, I'll backtrack a little bit, um, my daughter was born. And we, it was like, you know, the best thing. I know everybody says that, but it really is. It is the best thing. And, you know, I was there when she was born and just holding her. And I'll never forget. I'll just hold her for that first time. And, and I always promised myself, uh, you know, like, I know what it's like growing up without a father. Like, you know, I'm never going to put her in that position. And, and and we were really close growing up. So she was five when I ended up going to prison. And I had her half the time. And uh, I, you know, I had nothing but love for her. She would make me so proud. And I just cherished every moment with her. But I was still caught up in the throes of this alcoholism and addiction. And it was... Um, you know, a lot of times I think back and I think me going to prison really saved my life. And it, it may have actually saved my daughter's life as well. Because, um, you know, I don't know. I may have put her in a position or some, you know, some, who knows what would have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, because there was a couple of times where, you know, I had left her home alone to go get drugs and come back and gotten hired, things like that. And I just, you know, it's like thinking about that kind of stuff. It's like, eh. But it just shows you how powerful the addiction and the alcoholism is. It it really just consumes you. It really just consumes your soul. And at that time, you really, really, it's a, it's a matter of survival. Your brain, your brain makes you think it's a matter of survival that you have to have this literally in order to survive. That's right. And obviously, that's not true. Um, I mean, in some cases, if your addiction is really, really physically dependent, you can get really sick. Uh, but um, but your brain literally makes you think you need this substance right. or activity. Whatever it is you're addicted to, do, it makes you believe you really need this to survive. And it's not a conscious thought. It's a, it's a subconscious thing that happens behind the scenes. But, but literally, um, that's what happens. And so... Um, you know, my grandmother passed away and I just had this, this thought like, you know, man, my daughter's out there, you know, and it just, it really, really, a switch just clicked. And I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm not, I'm never drinking or getting high again. And I haven't. And so, uh, Congratulations. 15th, Congratulations. thank you. July 15th of this year, uh, it will be seven years since Congratulations. my last drink. I appreciate that. Thank you. And so I really just, you know, I started working out. I started being positive. I started really just trying to focus on the positive things. Um, and I ended up getting out of prison, coming back to New Mexico. And I was at the halfway house. And I needed my uh, driver's license, uh, my social security card, uh, Medicaid. And someone told me, hey, uh, go to this place called Best Chance. They'll help you out. And uh, so I went to Best Chance. And... It's an organization here in Albuquerque. That's a nonprofit. And what they do is they work directly with returning citizens and they provide peer support and they also provide material support. So they give you a backpack, they give you some hygiene, they give you a couple pairs of t-shirts, a couple pairs of boxers, a couple pairs of socks. 
Um, and they also offer a curriculum, basically life skills, anything from finding, keeping a job to emotional regulation, um, to spirituality. Um, it's a, it's a six week long course. So I started going there and I started taking the courses, participating. Uh, they helped me get my driver. Well, they helped me get my ID at first. Um, and then I ended up getting my driver's license, but just by going through this process and being positive and, um, participating in the programming and stuff, eventually the, the executive director pulled me aside one day and was like, Hey JD, I think you would actually make a really good peer support worker. Have you ever thought about doing that? I said, well, no, I haven't, but you know, now that you mention it, I'm open to any opportunities. And so it was okay. Well, um, you know, we have, there's a training that's going to be starting, which is through OPRI, um, which is the organization in Mexico that oversees the certified peer support workers. So I took the training. Um, I got my certification to be a peer support worker. And I started working at best chance. Also, when I was at the halfway house, I heard about wings for life because my mother, um, was working with wings for life. They were actually a support to her when she, when I was incarcerated and the executive director was a really great support to my mother, giving her support and understanding. Um, and so I started doing community service at wings for life. And that's one thing about one thing that's really, really broken as far as our whole justice system, I believe is that so Yes, I put myself in a situation where I landed up in prison. And yes, they punished me by putting me in prison. But really, in reality, I had it easy, right? Don't get me wrong. Being in prison was the worst time of my life. I saw and did things that I'm not proud of. Um, you know, I saw horrible things. That was a lot of stress. That was a lot of trauma. There's a lot of... PTSD, there's a lot of anxiety I still carry with me to this day because of that. But in reality, I had it easy. I had my three meals a day. I had my schedule laid out for me. I knew when I had to be where I had to be. I didn't have to worry about anything going on in the outside world. Of course I did. I worried about my family. I worried about my daughter. Every day, my daughter was first and foremost in my mind. Um, but like I said, it was, you know, it was my own little world. It was very isolated. And I just, of course, you know, there's always stuff that's going to happen that you're not anticipating. But really, my schedule was very structured and my days were very structured. And I didn't really have a lot of worry or stress. The people that actually really suffered was my daughter. <laughs> She was five years old. We were very close. One day she wakes up and her dad's not there. Right. Her whole world changed, got flipped upside down. She has to go through school. You know, people ask, oh, where's your dad? You know, um, she just, uh, you know, I, I'm really grateful for my mother and her mother for taking on the more responsibility that they had to with me not being there. Um, you know, she, she really, really suffered. And so she's 13 now and we're just really, um, she stays with me and we're just really like working on building back up our relationship because really we're just had to really get to know each other. I'm a completely different person than I was before. 
she's obviously a completely different person. She was five and now she's 13. Right. You know, I think about uh, teenage girls. Right. But <laughs> Absolutely. For me to be able to build her trust back, um, you know, and those wounds that I've caused her, it's like, you know, and I really just, I really just have to forgive myself and just move on. And what I'm really trying to do is just be an example by just being stable, you know, just showing it that I'm here now and I'm not going anywhere again. And, um, and so it's been hard. Um, so she really, really, really suffered. My mom suffered, you know, again, she wakes up one day and, and I'm not there. She has to take on, uh, a lot of the roles and the responsibilities of being a parent to my daughter. When one day when I was in prison, she told me, you know, I told her mom, I really appreciate everything you're doing. And she told me, you know, of course I'm going to do it. That's my granddaughter, but I don't want to be a parent. I want to be a grandparent. You know, I've already been a parent. I want to be a grandparent. I want to spoil my daughter. I want to do things with her. I don't want to have to wake up and get her ready for school and make sure she gets on school on time and make sure she's doing her homework. She's like, that's, you know, of course I'm going to do it because I love her and I love you, but that's not my role. Um, my daughter's mother, um, my ex who again had to take on more responsibility because I wasn't there. She struggles with some health issues. Um, and it's like, you know, just really putting more of a load on her plate. And she really just had to take up the extra slack and just be there and, and be both parents really, you know, and cause I wasn't there. Um, again, all, all my dad's side, all my, my grandmother, all my uh, cousins and nieces that really looked to me for support for the father figure, for the male role model to do things and, handle things, not even just like, you know, physically to move this or there, but just to be there as, as a father figure. I mean, they all really suffered. And it was like, man, you're punishing the person by putting them in prison, but really it's their loved ones and the ones around them that are closest to them and the ones that depend on them that really, really, really suffer and really take the hit. Yeah. And so that's what really, really impressed me about Wings for Life when I started volunteering there is that's what they focus on. So um, Wings for Life, the life stands for life skills imparted to families through education. And so what they do is they have um, weekly meetings where they serve dinner um, and they have guest speakers and activities that basically help strengthen families. So what we like to focus on is what's called the 40 developmental assets. And I'm not sure if you've ever heard of those, but it's um, 40 assets that they were developed and researched by an organization called the Search Institute. And they're divided into 20 internal and 20 external. And then within that, there's other, um, other subcategories. But they're, so like on internal would be um, like self-esteem. Yeah. On external would be like school support from families or community. Um, so things like that. So it's studied that if you have at least 20 of these 40 assets, that you're going to be a successful, happy uh, person. If you have less than 20, then you're at risk for um, behaviors that might uh, be detrimental to you. So behaviors like drug use, behaviors like um, crime, incarceration, 
um, behaviors, even like suicide. So if you have 40 or less of these. And so as I'm looking at these, this list of 40 assets, I'm like, man, I had maybe like four or five of these growing up. And it's not because my, you know, my family didn't love me. My mom didn't love me. My mom didn't do a good job. It's none of that. It was just the circumstances of, right. of our situation. And that's how it is for a lot of people. You know, um, people are just a product of their circumstances and their situation. And yes, there's always exceptions to every rule, mm-hmm. but for the most part, you know, people are a product of their environment. Yeah. You know, it's the old nature versus nurture, but, but there is a lot of, of your environment involved in that. And so when I saw these 40 assets and I'm like, man, if I could, you know, if I could um, be part of an organization that encourages and developing these 40 assets, man, shoot them all for it. So I started volunteering at wings um, and doing that. And then, the executive director there said, hey, we're going to start a uh, program called Wings Works. And what it is, is it's a job training program for returning citizens. So um, she goes, you know, I think, you know, I think you might be a good person to to do that. And so I was like, sure. And so they actually brought me on, on as a paid staff member. And um, over time, basically, I... Uh, developed into the wings works director. So now I'm in charge of the whole program. So just really quick, what it is, is it's, um, there's a, a wings volunteer that has a successful handcrafting business where she makes ceramic arts and crafts. Um, and she's had the successful business for about 37 years now. And she wants to retire. She doesn't want to do it anymore. So she actually donated her entire business to wow. wings. Wow. Yeah. And so, Along with that, all her molds, all her designs, all her patterns. Um, along with that, also the majority of her wholesale customers said that they would stay on and continue to purchase from us. So we just put in a, a lease for a space on Central, and what we're going to do is hopefully as soon as next week we're going to be able to move into that space and set up shop. And so we'll be able to hire returning citizens coming directly out of incarceration to actually produce um, these these clay products and be able to sell them. But really what it is, is it's me being a certified peer support worker who's knows what it's like to suffer with addiction, alcoholism, life of crime, um, and also the fact that I have done prison time, you know, so someone coming out of prison to be able to enter a program run by someone like me who's walked in their shoes. Right. Hopefully it will be, they'll be a little more invested because I know for me, when I went to best chance, all the certified peer support workers there have done prison time. Mm -hmm. And so for me first coming in and then, you know, ask me, do you know what a peer is? Oh yeah, I know what a peer is. Okay. Well, I'm no better than you. I just got out of prison a year ago. I was like, Oh man. Okay. Well, if you can do it, maybe I can do it, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so, um, but it's not also just about them making these products. It's also just basically teaching them the aspects of a business. So we also have a curriculum that, um, some interns from Highland Highlands university, um, has, has, uh, and CNM have helped me develop that basically, walk someone through all aspects of running and starting a business. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
when I was incarcerated, a lot of the brightest, smartest, street smart, um, even some of the more book smart and some of the most creative artists I've ever seen was when I was incarcerated. Um, the issue is a lot of people don't know how to take that skill they have and when they get out, transition that into a viable business to be able to make money for themselves and support their family. So with this uh, program and this curriculum, what we can do is if someone has an idea for a business, whether it be um, just some examples, landscaping or, um, you know, bike repair, motorcycle repair, auto mechanic, anything like that. Um, if they have a desire to start their own business, we can basically walk them through every step of that from getting their business license to getting their LLC to getting a copyright if it's applicable, like if they're doing art or things like that, um, to the, the planning, the budgeting, the finance, you know, the elevator pitch, um, talking to investors. But we also work with a couple of local organizations that will help them actually fund it so they can actually get a low interest business loan to start off. Um, with as low as like a fixed 5% interest rate, which is actually really that's, good. That's really good. Um, so, so all aspects, everything from the budgeting plans and financing to, to, you know, getting up off the ground and we'll be there to work with them as well as other organizations to support them through that whole process. So hopefully by the time they're ready to move on from our organization, they'll be able, in a, in a position where they can start their own business. Now, not everybody has the desire or the want to start their own business. So also what I do is I work with, um, through New Mexico Workforce Connection, I work with uh, other organizations to be able to hire someone and then say they work maybe for like six months. Then we can um, start contacting other local industry, other organizations who may not normally give someone a chance, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, who may not normally give someone a chance that maybe just got out of prison or doesn't have the work history, doesn't have any time, you know, or they have large gaps of, of unemployment in their work history due to incarceration or addiction or whatever have you. But then basically we vet them for that organization. So we can say, look, I've been working with, um, you know, just random name. I've been working with John now for six months. He's never missed a day. He's always on time. This is all the things that we've developed since he started. You know, we've developed his marketing skills. We've developed his sales skills, um, whatever, what have you. Um, you know, and now he has six months of work history. Would you be willing to hire him on and give him a chance? And so, you know, the hope is that this corporation will be like, okay, since you've taken the time to actually take a chance on this guy and he's proven himself with you, now we'll give him a chance also to prove himself with us. So um, that's kind of Wings Works in a nutshell. Um, and so right now, we, the the main thing holding us up has have been we we haven't really had a lim uh, space to work. So once we are able to move into the space and really set up shop. Um, you know, we'll be, we'll be good to go because uh, we've actually been working out of this volunteer's home. She has a little home studio. <laughs> so we've been uh, working out of her home, but it's just, you know, it's been hard because we have to coordinate with her schedule. She also has a part-time job she does. 
and then um, coordinate with you know all the people coming out um, and their schedule and so it's it's been difficult so once we have a a solid space where we can actually set up wings works um, because we've been working out of the wings for life offices as well and it's not really set up for that for any sort of production or anything so you have humbled me with your story uh jd um, I just want to congratulate you and also to acknowledge, uh, you know, the trauma and pain that you've been through. And this whole issue of identity is so important, right? I mean, I'm a mestiza as well. And it is. It's a difficult process to kind of figure out who are you, especially when you're New Mexican, like myself yeah. as well. Uh, because people don't know our history. They don't know the role of the Spanish. They don't know the role of uh, what happened with Native communities and that we kind of walk that line in between right we're not that and we're not that but we are mestizos right and in many communities throughout the united states throughout the southwest um you know we identify as chicana chicano because of that particular history so one just to acknowledge you and your beautiful story a hard story right it's not a story of glory it's a story of struggle and trauma and I just want to recognize your recovery on your resiliency. I mean, that is what we want. We want to build on people's resiliency and the belief that people can do better for themselves with help. And that's what you're doing. I love the comment of you talking about returning citizen, because so many times when our community members, our family members come out of prison, they're seen as second-class citizens, and this gives them hope and gives them wholeness, just like what we're trying to do in our identities. So I can't say enough about your story. And, you know, there's something about you, J.D., that every executive director went up to you and said, hey, I think this would be due for you, right? So there's something there for you that that's an innate, uh, it's an innate strength that you have for and you know some of that was really looking at your daughter and seeing that's your future and your commitment to your family and the role that you play as a a mayor figure in your family and that's so important for so many of us right because our many of our fathers uh have struggled with alcoholism and have been the strong person in our lives right and so watching them go through that is a really difficult process i i know that story I know that story, JD. But, you know, these nonprofits who come together from their own experiences many times um, really create a foundation for our communities um, and our families to support them um, to come back together again. Um, so, you know, Healthcare and Toad is really telling stories like yourself, JD. And I'm so proud of the work that now you're doing, you know, developing businesses. I mean, that's the direction we need to go. Why don't you share with the uh, listening audience the name of the company that you're now working towards in, in the studio? Well, the uh, so the name of the, I want to say the um, project is Wings Works. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a website. It's wingsworks.org. Where you can see some of the pro- uh, products and stuff we sell. Okay, that's good. And just a couple, just a couple Please. other quick notes. Mm-hmm. So part of Wingsworks is also gifts of the Southwest. Is the products that myself and the returning citizens will be making um, to fund not only Wingsworks but other uh, Wings for Life programming. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of that is we also have what's called the Unique Boutique, which is 
independent artists, and this is also on the website, um, independent artists across the country, and really it's open to anyone all over the world. Um, but a lot of there's just a lot of really talented artists out there that don't really have the marketing or the avenues to promote their art, and so what we do is we showcase them on our website um, and uh, give them an opportunity to sell their artwork through us. Um, so there's a lot of really talent, talented artists out there. Um, like I said before that maybe just don't have the, the knowledge or the education or the resources to promote their stuff. And so we kind of help them do that as well. Um, and then also we have a section of um, inmate made art. So right now we just have a couple of things on there. There's actually uh, from my former cellmate who was an older Dene gentleman who hand makes stream catchers um, mm. in prison. And it's a pretty interesting process. He, uh, he gets coffee creamers um, from other inmates, the bottles that are yeah. uh, used that are empty. He takes the lid off and he uses nylon string to cut the rings from the lids and then he takes old uh, boot shoelaces. So when you get to federal prison, they give everyone a pair of work boots. And then when you burn through them, you take them to the laundry and exchange them for new ones. Well, he gets those old shoelaces, um, takes them apart. And inside a boot shoelace, there's like a little, another shoelace that's basically just a bunch of multicolored strings all spun together. So he takes those apart by hand, um, separates all the colors, and then re-spins them. Um, and makes the colored strings, and then wow. uses those to make the web. So it's a pretty. It's, wow. it's a, yeah, <laughs> I want to look process. at those. Want to look so, at those for sure. But yeah, but, so it's Wingsworks, and then Gifts of the Southwest is okay. the actual Wingsworks product. And we're going to be expanding. Also, um, there's a gentleman that does bike repair, uh, so that's going to be under Wingsworks as well. There's a New Mexico Rams project, which takes um, old, recycled, and discarded wood and makes ramps for uh, wheelchairs so um you know people will be able to learn carpentry skills um we're also as soon as we are able to expand a little more we're going to develop a commercial kitchen so people um can learn some culinary arts and things like that so really the sky's the limit for that, that's right that's right that's right well on behalf of healthcare and toad i can't thank you enough for your, for sharing all of that incredible story with us jg any last comments for our listening audience um no i would well yes actually i will i will say um i do appreciate what you said about the label and the uh you know the identity of people coming out of prison and that's part of the reason why we use the term returning citizen rather than inmate or convict or felon mm -hmm. or anything like that um because really I truly believe that inside everybody is a is a decent, honest person that really just wants to do well and do well for themselves and do well for their families. And so I would just encourage people, you know, don't judge, just think about the traumas, the difficulties, the um, the struggles you've had in your own life, and just think about how under different circumstances, those struggles and those traumas and those hurts could have very easily taken you down a different path. And when you drive by and see someone struggling on the street, whether they be homeless, whether they be addicted, anything like that, that could very well be any one of us. 
That's right. um, under different circumstances. That's right. That's and right. so, you know, just be kind to one another and everyone deserves a second chance and just, you know, um, just try to be positive and spread goodness and love. That's all I would have to say. Thank you, JG. And thank you for your faith in humanity and uh, every individual that you see. That's That makes the difference in improving our world. And uh, you're one of our heroes today. So thank, <laughs> thank you, you very much. That. Thank you very much on behalf of Healthcare Untold. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold. Healthcare untold.